Hello and welcome back to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Haley Lemieux, and this week we will explore how oil affects world politics through contributing to authoritarianism and armed conflict. To learn more about the oil curse and its implications for international relations, I spoke to Dr. Leif Wenarm, author of the new book Blood Oil and professor at King's College London, Dr. Jeff Colgan, author of the book Petroaggression and professor at Brown University, and Dr. Michael Ross, author of the book The Oil Curse and professor at UCLA. In this podcast, you'll hear pieced together excerpts from these interviews, which we will turn to now. First, let's listen to Professor Ross explain what the oil curse is. Countries around the world all aspire to find natural resource wealth, particularly oil and gas wealth. But when they do, it often turns out they're worse off than they were before. It can send their economies into all kinds of trouble. And on top of that, it tends to make their governments less accountable, less democratic, and more subject to corruption. So instead of being a good thing, it often turns out to be a bad thing. And that's why we call it the oil curse. And so what explains why the oil curse exists? It's it's not an easy thing to understand, and many scholars have have studied it to try to figure out figure out what causes it. And it's still a bit of a puzzle. But I think a lot of people believe that it has much to do with the fact that oil wealth is volatile. So the value goes up and down. So we see, for example, around the world today that oil-dependent countries like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Russia and Iran, etc., are all having terrible difficulties because they were getting huge revenues a few years ago. Now they're running enormous deficits and uh, having trouble financing their government. So the volatility of the revenues is one thing. Another thing, though, is just the fact that a huge amount of money goes into the hands of the government. And this tends to make the government and whoever runs the government very powerful. A, uh, a story in Brazil recently called Oil the Nectar of Dictators because authoritarian governments find that if they have access to this money, it helps them stay in power, it helps them repress the opposition, it helps them buy off potential opponents and run their governments with very little accountability. And it also creates huge opportunities for corruption. You can keep your oil industry going for a long time even while many, many people are skimming off a lot of the uh, a lot of the revenues and stashing it away in their own private bank accounts. That's not true for a lot of other industries. If your country has a, uh, a successful textiles industry and people start skimming money off, the manufacturer is going to go to another country where corruption is lower. But oil is, as the people in the industry say, got to follow the oil wherever it is. So if oil is you know, beneath your ground, beneath your soil, the companies will go there to extract it, even if corruption levels are high. Those are some of the reasons, but it's a complex phenomenon, and there's lots of debate in, in political science and economics over exactly how to understand it. So think of the West's worst threats and crises over the last 40 years. You are now hearing Professor Leif Wenarm. Right now we're seeing ISIS with their atrocities, the Syrian refugee crisis putting pressure on Europe, the hot conflicts in Libya and Iraq and Yemen, and the Cold War heating up between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Going a little farther back, it was Putin going into Ukraine. Farther back than that, Al-Qaeda, 9-11, Saddam, 
Gaddafi, genocide in Darfur, the Iranian sponsorship of terrorism for all these decades. And if you go all the way back to the Soviet Union, the Soviets were surging ahead of the West in the nuclear arms race in the 70s and 80s. All of those threats and crises have one thing in common. They all come from countries that produce a lot of oil. There's something about oil that keeps generating these international threats and crises. The thesis of the book, Blood Oil, is that what is causing the trouble is a bad old rule in the international system, which is essentially the rule that all countries use, which is might makes right. That is, whoever can seize oil by force in a foreign country can sell it to us. We will be in business with whoever can control the oil coercively in oil-rich states. So, for example, when Saddam took over Iraq in a coup, we started buying Iraq's oil from him. And then later, when ISIS took over those wells, the world started buying oil from them. This old rule of might makes right is something we take entirely for granted. But if you think about it, it makes no sense, even from an ordinary perspective. I mean, if there's an armed gang who takes over a petrol station down the road, no one thinks that the bystanders get a legal right to buy the petrol from the gang. But when Gaddafi took over Libya in a coup, the world started buying Libya's oil from Gaddafi. And then later during the Arab Spring, when rebels took over those wells from Gaddafi, we started buying Libya's oil from the rebels. So every country's rule for the natural resources of other countries is this battle rule of might makes right. And you can see why that causes so much trouble. Essentially, the world says we will give huge amounts of money to whoever can control oil by force that incentivizes armed groups to fight over the oil, as we see now in Iraq and Libya. And it also rewards authoritarians who can control an entire oil-producing country with very large revenues, which they can use to buy the loyalty and the arms that they need to stay in power, as we see, for example, in Russia and in Iran. And in the case of Saudi Arabia, the money that we've sent for oil has empowered the regime for decades to spread this extreme version of Islam around the world by funding study centers and mosques and madrasas, which we now see extreme version of Islam mutating into homegrown terrorism not only in the Middle East and Asia, but also in Europe and perhaps in America too. So the structure of the international oil market is based on an archaic anti-market rule, which has been causing a huge amount of trouble for decades. This is Professor Jeff Colgan speaking about the circumstances under which oil contributes to aggressive foreign policy. The one that comes to most people's mind when you talk about oil and war are the examples where countries uh, try to take oil from another country that has oil. Uh, so kind of, uh, examples like Japan in World War II invading Indonesia and Southeast Asia for oil and other uh, natural resources comes to mind, or, or Iraq invading Kuwait in 1991, or 1990, rather. 
so that's one type of, of kind of resource wars. Those are uh, relatively rare, thankfully, uh, in the international system. Uh, what's more common uh, is that the countries that actually have the oil tend to be quite aggressive themselves. Uh, and in that case, the situation is, is the following. The, not all oil countries are aggressive, but what happens with an oil um, producing economy is that very often those countries are more authoritarian, or they're more likely to be authoritarian than, than non-oil producing countries. Uh, and uh, very often the, the leader can use that oil money to um, repress dissent either with security services or by uh, using the oil money for patronage purposes. And what that ultimately comes down to is that the, the leader has uh, much more autonomy, less accountability to uh, the people that he's, he's ruling. Uh, and gives that gives him a, a, a free reign or free hand in, in foreign policy. Uh, and so his leadership preferences matter a lot. And I'm using the male pronoun intentionally because it's almost always a he. Uh, and the, the issue there is, is what kind of leader is this person? And leaders that are uh, more aggressive are likely to be much more aggressive when they're running an oil-producing country, uh, whereas in other countries we have presumably the same range of human behavior and leadership, but they're more constrained uh, by domestic politics, and so they're less likely to get into, into international conflicts. Um, all of that to say, countries like uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, or Iran under the Ayatollahs, or Libya under Gaddafi, these are countries uh, that had aggressive uh, leaders. Uh, in all three of those cases, they came from domestic revolutions. Uh, and uh, all three of those countries had quite aggressive foreign policies uh, and in, in terms of intervening in other countries. Okay, so what are some of the international consequences related to this aggression? Well, that means that you get various kinds of international conflicts and wars. And so... In the past, for instance, Libya has clashed with its neighbors in various directions. It had a, a, a short war with Egypt in the 70s. It had multiple wars with Chad uh, in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, of course, Saddam Hussein's Iraq uh, went to war against Iran in the 1980s, uh, invaded Kuwait in 1990. Um, and the Iranians have, have had a, a aggression and conflicts with, with its neighbors in uh, all points of the compass. Uh, and now, of course, Russia is starting to behave much like this kind of petro-aggressive behavior that I've been describing in these other countries, uh, where Putin is, is not a leader that, that came to power through revolution, but he does seem to have quite aggressive preferences. Uh, and um, he is certainly in charge of a country that is, is heavily dependent on oil and gas. And so we might start to think about his behavior or Russia's behavior in uh, Crimea, in Syria, in, and elsewhere uh, as uh, another instance of this behavior that I describe as, as petro-aggression. Oil is by far the world's most important commodity. It uh, dominates the international commodity trade, and all countries depend on a steady flow of petroleum that is 
countries can survive for a long time without access to gold or silver or timber. If their supply of maize or palm oil is cut off, they can switch to some other commodities. Petroleum's unlike that. Countries all depend on having this and having a steady supply. It's also very hard to stockpile, so they need to have continuous flows, and this creates a very special kind of politics around petroleum. We can certainly see all kinds of crazy politics in places like Venezuela. Right now, inflation is expected to reach over 700% this year because this country is dependent on oil wealth. It had a government that, during the last oil boom, became increasingly undemocratic, and now, when prices are, are falling, the country is truly in trouble and very, very difficult to fix. You know, we certainly see politics playing out in the Middle East between oil-rich Iran, oil-rich Saudi Arabia, and various allies of theirs, to undemocratic countries fighting for control over territory. Oil plays, a, plays an enormous role in Middle East politics, and it certainly helps us understand Russian politics today. Vladimir Putin had the good fortune of taking office at a time when oil prices were at the lowest price they'd been for many decades. And from that point, oil prices rose and rose and rose until 2014. And as those prices rose and stayed high, Putin's popularity also stayed very high. And people ascribed all kinds of miraculous powers to him, in part because he happened to be in office while oil wealth was accumulating. Now that oil prices have plummeted, he's in a much more precarious position. And I think that makes it um, tougher for other countries in their interactions with Russia to develop sort of steady and reliable relationships and have a good appreciation of uh, where Putin's going. The Russian involvement in Crimea and Syria are two good examples of this kind of behavior. And what's going on in, in South Sudan is mostly a civil war, uh, another oil-producing country that is uh, suffering under what social scientists like to call the resource curse, with this sort of breakdown of, of governance institutions. But uh, there is also an international component to South Sudan's conflict where Sudan uh, is also involved in it uh, in various ways and so we might consider that a, another example of it. One, one country that I would say is, is quite different in this respect um, or one recent event that is quite different is Saudi Arabia's intervention in, in Yemen. Saudi Arabia of course is an uh, oil producing country, uh, almost the archetype of it, and up until now, it has had a leadership that is quite conservative. The, the monarchy has not wanted to be aggressive and has generally avoided international conflicts. But with the new king, who just came into power in two, uh, 2014, it's been quite a shift in the regime's behavior, where he's trying to position his son as the next king of Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, uh, contentious because there are lots of princes in Saudi Arabia and lots of rival claimants for the throne. And that seems to have led the king and his son to decide that a good move would be to invade Yemen and get involved in that civil war, uh, which strikes me as a, a, a disastrous move, uh, which is currently playing out. But that's, that's the kind of behavior 
that comes from a, a very well-funded regime that has lots of military technology purchased from the United States and the United Kingdom and elsewhere that is now using it against sort of local insurgency in Yemen. So what can the international community do to change these laws and combat the effects of the resource curse? Fortunately, the international community has already agreed on paper to a much better modern rule for the basis of trade in oil and other natural resources. The better modern rule for trade in resources is something you'll find in Article 1 of the two major human rights covenants, which just says, all peoples shall, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural resources. The rule that the world has agreed to on paper is that it's the people and not the power who should have the ultimate right to control the resources of a country. So the people should have the ultimate right to decide what happens, for example, to a country's oil. And all that means in practice is that the government of a country should be minimally accountable to the people for what it does with the natural resources. Whether the government's going to privatize those resources or sell them to foreigners or leave them to the ground, the principle that the world has already agreed to on paper is that the people should have final say and some accountability over their own government. As I say, the world has agreed to that principle on paper, but no country has turned that principle into its own law. If a country like the United Kingdom or the United States were to take this principle of popular resource sovereignty seriously, it would say that for all countries in the world, the people should have the ultimate right to control their resources. And so we would not buy oil from anyone who could not possibly have the authorization of the people to sell it. Many countries are, have accountable governments, but actually about 50% of the world's traded oil is sold off by governments who could not possibly have the authorization of their people to be selling that oil. Either the people can't find out what's happening to their oil, or they could not possibly change the government's plans without fearing for their safety or their lives. So places like Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, Algeria, big oil producers, the people there could not possibly be controlling their own oil. By this modern principle that the world has already signed up to, that means that the oil is literally being stolen from the people. And the big change would be for countries to say, we're no longer going to be buying oil from people who are literally stealing it from their own populations. The big change would therefore be for countries to taper off their imports of authoritarian oil and also other stolen natural resources like conflict minerals. Now that would be a big change. Like I say, there's a lot of oil that's now controlled by authoritarian regimes. The transition to the new rule of popular resource sovereignty has to be handled peacefully and deliberately and responsibly. The big importing countries should coordinate their efforts and to signal that they will at certain some point in the future no longer be buying authoritarian oil. It's going to take a lot of effort to make this change and a lot of effort to make it so that big oil producing countries do have governments that are minimally accountable to their own people for resources. There's a lot in the book about how the change can be responsibly managed by leading countries. And 
I'm actually very optimistic that the change can and will happen. It will take effort, but so did the transitions away from the legal slave trade and colonialism and apartheid. We can do this if we really want to do it. The reason to do it is not only that it's the right thing to do, but if we keep on with business as usual, we're just going to see more authoritarianism, oppression, armed conflict, and especially instability in the Middle East, because we'll be sending our money to the people who are attacking and oppressing the people instead of what we should be doing, which is getting on the side of the people as they struggle to get governments that represent them. It's a very difficult challenge. There are a couple of different options. One that is being suggested by Leif Winner, who's he's just written a book called Blood Oil, that lays out a proposal for how OECD countries could try to constrain the resource curse and limit the degree to which Western funds are flowing into petro-autocracies that have kind of regimes that, that, that are, are, are behaving badly, if you will, for lack of a better term. That's one possibility. Uh, there's a lot of challenges, uh, both political and in terms of implementation challenges to that approach. Uh, I'm, I'm fond of the proposal, but uh, I think that another uh, possibility is to try to limit the flow of, of weapons into countries that are heavily funded by oil and, and natural gas. Uh, and that's a, a, a another possibility that I think is important to consider, especially in light of a change we're seeing now where it's not just the countries that have the oil where we're seeing insurgencies and civil wars. That pattern has been around for the last three or four decades and that social scientists have been uh, associating with the resource curse. But in the last couple of years, we're really starting to see more weapons flowing out of the countries to the to the neighboring countries uh, where the oil regions uh, are being produced so uh, insurgencies like Boko Haram or ISIS ISIS is involved in, in the, the oil patch in Iraq of course but in Syria there's really less oil and it's uh, it's being funded primarily by the oil that's being taken out of Iraq also in Yemen and, and elsewhere where we see a whole range of insurgencies that are in some way being funded by oil money, but are not actually necessarily in the countries that we think of as major oil producers. So that's an additional trend that is something that we should, as an international community, really be thinking hard about. There's actually been a lot of progress in the last decade or so in international initiatives to try to promote more stability, more transparency in the oil trade. One of the unusual characteristics of the oil industry is just how secretive it is. Even though the countries around the world are dependent on oil imports, it's often very unclear where that oil comes from. And companies really conspire to keep it that way. There's been a movement afoot to bring greater transparency to the international oil trade and to induce countries that are dependent on oil to make their governments more transparent and accountable. One of these initiatives was actually started by Tony Blair in the early 2000s, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI, which has now been spun off into an independent international organization. The Honorable Claire Short is currently the head of EITI. It has about 50 countries that have signed up and agreed to follow its guidelines 
for publishing regularly information about how much oil revenues and other mineral revenues it's getting and exactly how it accounts for it. So that's been a very important initiative. There are other initiatives, many of them aimed specifically at this problem of transparency in the hopes that as people better understand where the oil money is flowing and how much of it there is, they'll also be able to keep better track of it, reduce corruption, and uh, promote accountability. And that final thought wraps up our podcast for this week. If you would like to hear the full original interviews for each of our guests, the links are in the description of the podcast. If you want to share your own thoughts on this topic, we are always accepting submissions to our blog at oxirsoc.com. Thank you so much to all of our guests, to our sponsor Morgan Stanley, and to podcastthemes.com for our intro and outro music. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Until next time. Thank you.